Thank you, Phil. Thank you, choir. Good morning. If you have your Bible with you, please turn to the book of Ruth with me this morning. I want to say, if you did not have an opportunity to come last night, please come tonight. Me and my wife were talking. It truly is the best Christmas program I've ever seen, concert. I mean, it, the whole thing is amazing. So uh, please invite others. A great crowd last night, and uh, you want to make sure to be here early tonight to get a seat, I'm sure. I mean, it, it is just it's absolutely phenomenal, the whole program is, and um, gospel-centered and absolutely amazing. Ruth chapter 2, we covered Ruth chapter 1 last week. We'll cover chapter 2 and chapter 3 today. Got your seatbelt? Go ahead and put it on. We're about to go. Now, uh, we're going to look at a couple scenes in the book of Ruth. Won't be able to dive into all of chapter 2 and 3. That's a plug for college Sunday school. Uh, we will d dive into it even more in Sunday school. And, uh, and let me say, uh, even in your Sunday school class, all sun uh, adult Sunday schools will be diving deeper into chapter 3 today. So you want to take advantage of that. What we won't be able to cover, you'll be able to uh, cover it there. Hey, and I, I cannot wait till we get to chapter four. However, it's the week after Christmas. It's the climax. It's uh, it, it's really going to be fun. I can't wait to get there. I'm trying to hold back from it today. You know, you, it's like you know the story. You're trying not to let all the all the goods out. And so uh, it really is in chapter four. So we'll look forward to that. But next Sunday, definitely, I won't. Uh, will not want to miss Christmas communion. Uh, it will be very special, very excited, and praying toward that and a time of reflection and partaking in that together will be a sweet time and really make our Christmas special. So please mark that on your calendar as well. But here we are in Ruth chapter 2 and 3, and you say, why would you put two chapters together? Well, we were kind of forced to in a way um, in that uh, we had three weeks to preach the book. So when you have to do that, you have to do, and what made most sense to us was to do two and three together because chapters two and three parallel. Um, and, and chapters one and four parallel. And, uh, and, and the way chapters two and three parallel is you have at the beginning of both chapters, you have these two ladies, these, I call them the odd couple, Naomi uh, and Ruth, meeting together, planning the day together, and then the day goes forth as they try to execute those plans, and you see God at work, you see different things at work, and then at the end, they meet together again to celebrate the day, and then at the end of both chapters, there's a problem, and there's quite a big problem at the end of each chapter, and it won't be resolved until we come back after Christmas. It, it, cliffhanger, the writer was so amazing at leaving. Uh, this is just a great book, and so we dive into it. Um, I, I was, uh, what I would like to title this morning is, last week was we saw a lamenting people. We looked at the character of Naomi and how she lamented and hailed God's goodness, but yet how he had acted bitterly toward her, and how she held that together, and how she lamented, and how that uh, drew others to herself. And today, I want us to see a loyal people, a loyal people. Uh, Becoming one of my favorite TV shows, it, it mostly anything on uh, BPS. Did I say that right? Is that right? Did I say that right? BPS? BPS? Okay. Uh, the, the channel that you have to donate to that you keep it on air, I think. Uh, uh, Downton Abbey. I, have you seen Downton Abbey? My favorite on there is Sherlock Holmes. But D Downton Abbey, uh, my wife convinced me to watch it, and, and I was like, I don't want to watch that. Uh, but as I have gotten into it, it has increasingly become one of my favorite TV shows. Don't tell that to anybody else if you don't mind let's keep that here together let's try to edit that online if we can but uh let, let's keep that in here if we can but uh, one of the episodes uh, downton abbey is an estate in england um and there's a lord and there's a lady at the estate and they run they have servants and their family and villages that serve them and um at downton abbey uh lord grantham and lady grantham have a cook that they love and her name is Miss Pat, Miss Patmore. And Miss Patmore is uh, she's a redhead. She's an older lady. She's fiery, uh, but they love her. She's a great cook. She's amazing. However, she's growing older in age, and her she's not able to see very well. She's got cataracts, and uh, she her food is kind of falling off. And they know something's wrong, and they find out she's just having a really hard time seeing. Because they love her and are gracious to her, they want to send her to London to have the cataract surgery performed. And so they go, and she's gone for a week or two. And while she's gone, they have to call a substitute cook. And as this cook comes to cook for the family, she is helped by Daisy. Daisy is the cook that's always there. She's a younger girl. She's just as sweet. But her problem is she cannot tell a lie. 
oh, I don't think that's a problem, but that gives her a joke. She cannot lie about anything. When she's pressed, she has to tell the truth. Well, as they're uh, preparing a soup one day, they decide, uh, the substitute cook and Daisy, they decide to give the soup to the servants. They're going to eat that for dinner. Well, as they all gather around and as they all put a spoonful of the soup in their mouth, they immediately spit it all out, wonder what is wrong with the soup. And the cook, she's the, the substitute, uh, the sub cook, she's kind of an older lady, kind of very tall and, and very uh, stubborn looking in a way. And uh, she looks at Daisy and said, what did you do to the soup? And she just, ah, uh, I put soap in it. <laughs> and he put soap in it. Why would you do such a thing? She said, Miss Patmore told me to do it. She was scared that y'all would love her fo- uh, your food more than her food. And she was scared the family wouldn't want her to come back. And, uh, and she just, I didn't know what to do. I was just trying to obey her. And the, the cook gets up and she comes to Daisy who's just frightened, thinks she's going to get fired and who knows else what. She says, Daisy, there's worse sins than loyalty. And I thought, oh, what a beautiful scene. As I thought about that, and I thought about um, the characters in this story, uh, and I want us to talk about today and see how God's people are marked by their loyalty, uh, and especially here in this book. However, even that word loyalty falls short. There was no there was no illustration or anything I could find that was adequate to talk about uh, the word that's used in what's described here by God and his people. The Hebrew word is hesedness. Hesedness. God's hesedness. It, it we don't have an English word. It's translated in Ruth and throughout the Bible as loving kindness. But it's really not. Even that is a poor translation because the hesedness of God is love, kindness, mercy, and grace, and compassion all wrapped into one word, hesedness. We don't have a word like that. Hebrew is a rich language, and it has that word. And it's just the climax of all the grace and mercy and love and compassion you could imagine. And it's really found in the character of God, and it's showcased in his people. And I want us to see that and examine our lives, and, and is that evident in our lives as well. So if you will, in chapter 2 of Ruth, let us look uh, mostly at the character of Boaz. Uh, mostly at the character of Boaz in chapter 2. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. I think that's why we should focus on him in our short time together, because he's named right there in verse 1. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the field. Here they are talking together. Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him, in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, go Go, my daughter. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. The writer wants you to know in verse 1 and 3, says it again in the family. This man, Boaz, is of the family of Elimelech. In that word family, in uh, Israel, you had immediate families. And immediate families were made out of a clan. And clans made tribes, and tribes made Israel. And the clan function, the clan, was the most important part. Um, We don't use this terminology, but when you meet for Christmas with your family, you'll meet with your clan. That would have been the Old Testament word there. And and Elimelech is of the clan of, uh, uh, Boaz is of the clan of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless you. So what do we know about Boaz already right here? Uh, As he is in this field, as Ruth is in this field, in Boaz's field, look what he first says. And uh, the dialogue of the characters is so very important. It's so limited, but it's meant to convey something. Here in verse 4, we see that he is a godly person. That he, he is so close to God, it has really it has guided to even his conversations with his employees. Uh, and that is the mark of a godly person, is it not? Uh, how far God gets into the everyday, uh, mundane parts of their life. And, and right, it's right in his conversation with his workers. Very godly man here, Boaz, the family of Elimelech. And Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? So he sees a woman in the field, a Moabite woman. Who, whose young woman is this? So the servant was in charge of the reapers, answering and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Do you see the word that's used twice there in verse 6? Moab. 
<laughs> it's even pointed out uh, in verse 2 and in chapter 1, verse 22, twice. When it addresses Ruth, um, the writer wants you to know she is from Moab. And it'd be important to note, Moab uh, was the enemy of God's people. Uh, they were the people that restricted God's people from entering the promised land, to, attempted to curse God's people, and she's one of them. So here you have this foreigner, and not just any foreigner, you have the worst kind of foreigner coming uh, with Naomi back to Bethlehem, attempting uh, to be faithful to her and serve her and be a part of God's people. And now you have this godly man, Boaz. How's this going to turn out? Um, how are they going to interact? Is he going to accept her or deny her because of who she is in her past? In verse 7, and she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little while in the house. So the servant of Boaz is telling Boaz that she has come and requested um, to get grain. God had set apart in his law that during the harvest, um, the reapers were to leave the edges of the field for the destitute, for the poor, for those who could come and glean their own grain. He, he had put that there so there was a way for people to eat who didn't have food. And she just asked, can I come? Can I get grain out of your field? And, um, of course, the man had let her. In verse 8, and Boaz said to Ruth. So now Boaz approaches this foreign lady, this Moabite woman. You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close to my young women. Wow. So he, automatically he says, you're in the right place. You can stay here. You can hang out with my young women and gather grain with them. Look at verse 9. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Wow. He says, Ruth, don't go to any other field. You're in the right field. He says, uh, my, I've told my men not to harm you. Apparently, it was not uncommon for women to be taken advantage of, to be harmed, especially those who, who there was nobody accountable, no husbands, no men to take care of them in this time. They were very vulnerable to being taken advantage of. He says, I've told my men not to let that happen to you. I want to protect you. I want to provide for you. A foreigner, a stranger, a Moabite foreign woman. I want you to do that. Not only that, but look at the verse 9 at the end. And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Verse 10, look what she did. She fell on her face before Boaz. She bowed to the ground. This is the biblical definition of worship all throughout the Bible. Sometimes it's lifting up of hands, but more than anything, it is falling down before whoever you're worshiping. And she's in a posture of worship. And look at this question. She says, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? What is the Why did she act like that? Why did she fall down before Boaz? Simply this. She said, don't go anywhere else. He said, uh, follow my women. I've told my men not to harm you. But he went, whoa. The first reader that what he told, we look over it. What did he say? He said, drink, drink from the water that my men get. Let them give you water. Whoa. This goes against every cultural norm. In those days, women poured water for men in the field, everywhere. That's how it was. And and foreigners poured water for the Israelite ladies, and they also poured water for the men. He crosses all those cultural norms, and he says, my men and I will serve you water. A foreign Moabite woman. Not only can you stay in my field, not only can uh, you will be protected, but we will serve you. Wow. This is extravagant grace. This is hessiness like never before seen. Uh, and the law permitted all throughout the law in the Old Testament before this point, God tells his people, take care of the foreigner, take care of the uh, widow, because you were once uh, without hope in Egypt, a slave and a foreigner, and I brought you in, so take care of the foreigner. However, here we have a man of Bethlehem, a man going so far to not just obey the Lord, but truly take care of this Moabite woman. 
And uh, look, it gets, it gets even better, okay? Uh, in verse 11, he says, why? And Boaz answered and said to her, she says, why have you found favor? Look what he says. It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and your mother in the land of your birth to have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work. A full reward be given to you, the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. She said, let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me, have spoken kindly, kindly, there's the word, hesedus, to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. This word right here, maidservant, may not sound important, but it truly is. It's the lowest form of a slave in those days. We'll point that out here in just a minute while. Now, Boaz said to her at mealtime, so now it's mealtime. So not only is he taking care of her during the field and while they're working, but now it's mealtime. Come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed parched grain to her. That's cooked grain. Oh, that's the good stuff. He, the Lord of the harvest, the Lord of the field, the Lord, the one who is always served, he is the one who now serves. And she sat beside the reapers and he, who is the he? Boaz. He passed parched grain to her, and she ate and was satisfied, and she kept some back. Look, it, so not only does he say, come eat with us, he says, come eat and I'm going to serve you. Not only stay in the field, but let us pour you water. Not only come eat with us, but let me serve you while we eat. Once again, he's crossing boundaries. Verse 15, and she rose up to glean. Boaz commanded his young men, said, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. Also, let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. Let her glean. So she gleaned in the field until evening and beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley. An ephah is about 20 or 30 pounds of barley. And look what she does with it. She took it up and went to the city and her mother-in-law saw that she had gleaned. So she brought out and gave to her, and she had kept back after she had been satisfied. Ruth was no joke. <laughs> she, she picked up that 20, 30, 50 pounds of barley and put it on her back and, and went into town with it. Uh, Ruth had been taken care of. Boaz had went the extra mile in this scene over and over again. And I'm slow to say that he was thinking of marriage here. Though we know that's what happens, and we'll see that here in just a little bit, but I'm slow to say that that's what was happening there in the chapter. I don't think he expected to get anything back from uh, Ruth. I don't think he was expecting marriage. I, I don't think that here. I could be wrong. I'm open to being wrong. But I don't think he was expecting anything back from her. He was simply showing her loving kindness. He was simply going the second mile. Uh, there's a point in the book of Ruth because... You and I are so familiar with the book, and we know it. And I've, I've read it before, and I have overlooked this point in the book. Um, and, and I've wondered, this is, this is, this is uh, one of the, you know, when you become familiar with something, you just overlook certain things. And I overlooked the fact, uh, one of the key themes in this book was how the people from Bethlehem were supposed to be. How God's people were supposed to act. I bet you didn't notice it in chapter 1 because I didn't until somebody pointed it out to me. In chapter 1, when Ruth and Naomi come back from um, Moab after their widows and the deaths, and when they come back, did you see how they were accepted by the people in Bethlehem? Did you notice it? Look with me, uh, if you will, in verse 19 of chapter 1. When the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem, and it happened when they come to Bethlehem that all of the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is that Naomi? The Bethlehem people were excited to see Naomi and this Moabite woman, this foreign enemy. They were excited. They were welcoming into the city. And look, and it goes far in chapter 2 to show you that uh, Boaz is a man of Bethlehem. He is an example of how God's people are supposed to act toward outsiders, to foreigners, to strangers. And look, um, in chapter 4, in chapter 4, we're, I know I was trying to hold back chapter 4, but we got to. Y'all okay? I'm just, just going to wet the whistle just a little bit in chapter 4. Uh, and after, the, they, after uh, I can't say it, but uh, the good things happen in, in verse 11 of chapter 4. And all the people were at the gate 
kind of like we were eating at Country Cafe Thursday. We said, this is the city gates. This is where everybody is. It's awesome. Here they are at the city gates where everybody is. And all the people were at the gate and the elders. We are witnesses. The Lord made the women who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. May you prosper in the uh, Ephraimite uh, and be famous in Bethlehem. And they're so excited. They found out that Ruth and Boaz are going to have a baby. They're so, we skipped it. We got there. But they're so excited. They're excited for this Moabite woman, this enemy of God that's come in. They are so excited. And this is how God's people are supposed to be for other people. They're supposed to be lavishly putting grace upon people, showing grace to others. Uh, and you say, why is that a big deal? You know, this is the Christmas season, isn't it? It's December, and some of us have been talking and asking, what does this book have to do with Christmas? Why is Ruth? Here, here's what it has to do. Think about this. When Mary is great with child, they have to go back to what city? Bethlehem. How did the people greet Mary and Joseph? How did they meet the one carrying the Messiah? There was no room. In the end, was there? There was no room. But yet, here in the story of Ruth, we have these Bethlehemites who are so excited, not just to see a, a, maybe the Messiah, but to see a foreign Moabite woman, an enemy coming to their camp. And here in the New Testament, we have a people who could care less that the Messiah is being born. I love the Casting Crown songs. Oh, Bethlehem, what you missed while you were sleeping. The Messiah was born in your town while you were sleeping, and you missed it. There was no room in the inn. They had to go and was put in the, in the stable, in the, many believe to be the cave, and there Jesus was born. And then this Messiah is born, and he, he begins his teaching and healing ministry, and he tells a story, doesn't he? Uh, we all know it, the Good Samaritan. And he tells a parable, a man asks, how can you have eternal life? And Jesus says, you must keep the commandments, of course. And he says, uh, which ones? And, and he names, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor. And so the man wants a list, right? He wants a list of who's my neighbor. He says, Jesus, who's my neighbor then? Jesus then tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. He says, a man, doesn't say what nationality, just a man, fell among the thieves as he was going toward Jericho. And he was beaten up and left for dead. And a, a priest walked by and he seen this man beat up and he went across the street and walked away. And then a, a Levite came and he saw this man beat up and left for dead. And he looked and he walked across the street and left him. But then a Samaritan, a half-breed, not even a true Jew, a half-breed, come and he saw the man, and he take him. He, he put oil and wine on his wounds, and he put him on his own donkey. And where did he take him? To an inn. And he paid for his bills and made sure he was taken care of. He showed grace. But you know the greatest thing about the teaching of Jesus? He didn't just teach it. He wasn't at all a hypocrite. He showed the grace of God. He showcased the loving kindness of God, the hessiness of God. And there's no greater place he showcased it than on the cross of Calvary. You see, it was, it was on the, the gospel message is such one of amazement. You know, it wasn't though that Jesus came and he was accepted in Bethlehem because he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. They told the shepherds. The shepherds were the outcasts. The shepherds were the criminals that couldn't get a job doing anything else. That's who they announced his birth to. And they told, and the wise men knew, and they told the king, but nobody cared. It wasn't like he'd come to this earth and everybody was like, yay, look, our Messiah's here. No, the very opposite happened. He said he came to his own and his own received him not. He walked around the world in Jerusalem, and many followed him, yes, but at the end of the day, there was really only 11 that truly loved him. And even those 11 forsook him at the cross. They left him when he needed them most. And it wasn't like that when Jesus said, you know what, you guys love me so much. Man, the Jews, you've treated me so well. You know what, y'all are pretty good people. You know what, I think I might just die for your sins because you're so good. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says that would have made sense. I mean, somebody may die for a good person. Somebody may die for somebody who may be worth it at least. But here's the gospel and the love of God that God demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners, while we were the ones hollering crucify him, he died for us. While we were the enemies of God, that, that, that's going more than the second mile. That is the hessedness of God. Not only that, but it, it isn't just the fact of what that he died and was crucified for us, but it's what happened when he died. Yeah. 
The Bible says he became sin. You know, the night before in the garden when Jesus prays, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. He prays it and prays it, but there's no other way. And he, he bleeds, or he prays so hard, and he is such under such agony that he bleeds in prayer. And, and he gets just a taste there, I believe, of the wrath of God. Just a taste. And he says, it's too terrible. My friend, does that make you love Jesus any less? It doesn't me. Because even there where he got just a drop of, under, of the cup of God's wrath, understanding what it was, he still willingly and wantingly went to the cross and drunk the full cup of God's wrath. You and I will never understand that. Friend, it was in our place. You see, not only did Jesus show the love of God, but God showed his love. For God so loved the world. Think of this. God the Father loved his son infinitely and supremely, but yet he poured out his wrath upon him so that he could bring you and I to a right relationship with him. You see, there's none of us who are like, yeah, Jesus, thank you for dying for me, a good person. No, if you understand the gospel, it's the, you have to get to the point where he said, thank you, Jesus, for dying for me, a wretched sinner who had no other hope. That's the gospel message. That is the hessedness of God. And here, Boaz is an example of that, going the extra mile, being a person of grace, being a person of hessedness. And he showed it by just going uh, beyond in how he dealt with a foreigner, how he dealt with the woman Ruth. Now, chapter 3. Are you ready? Who? This one. Get ready. It's, it is appropriate. But there are, we'll just go there, okay? You're okay. Yeah, I'm okay. Chapter 3 in verse 1. All right, so they meet again. Now we're really going to look at the character of Ruth, okay? Well, let's look at the character of Ruth here. And Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, here they are. So at the end, I didn't end the uh, verse of, of chapter 2, verse 23. Uh, it's the end of the barley harvest, and they're still without a family, and they're still really without sustainable amount of food and going on in the future. They still have problems. They're still living together. They still need help. Chapter 3. So now me and her mother-in-law said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is the winnowing, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. God had set in his law an opportunity for the widow to be taken care of. Because being a widow meant somebody could buy your land at a very cheap price. Somebody could take your inheritance. Somebody could take land and all of that. And family was the most important thing in those days. And being widowed, you were at the chance of losing all of that. And so to keep the, the um, land in the family and the family continuing, God had allowed where the closest of kin could come and redeem the widow, could marry, have children, uh, and continue the line. Uh, heritage and keep the land in the family. God in his grace had provided that opportunity. By the way, nowhere else in the ancient Near East was there a law like that. Nowhere else in the ancient Near East was there a law to take care of the foreigners like we've seen in chapter 2. Only in God's economy. And so here's that's what Naomi is referring to in chapter 3 verse 2. In verse 3 she says, this is what you're going to do. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. Now, why would she need to do that? Remember, her husband died. She's been in mourning. She's been wearing clothes that are not colorful. She hasn't been, um, you know, going around with all the smiles in the world. But now, she says, now's the time to put on your best garment. Take a good bath. Put on the good oil. Get all ready to go. But look what she says do. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Huh. Verse 4. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies. <laughs> and you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down. And he will tell you what you should do. Whoa. There's a lot of sexual overtones right there. Jewish men, horse, I mean, you didn't see their legs. Uncover his feet? Lay down beside him? Let him tell me what to do? Ooh. When he's all by himself, even worse, right? 
after he's eaten and drinking and been married. After all that, go do that. And I love that she said, make sure you see where he lies down. It'd be bad if you went to the wrong guy, Ruth. <laughs> make sure you get the right one. This could go really bad. The original readers, in their mind, it, they could not have helped to go. Now, he has went to the furthest extent to show us that she is a Moabite woman. Every time she's mentioned, twice, points out she's from Moab. How did Moab start? How did the country of Moab start? Lot, his two daughters, planned, said, wait till the man is, is, is drunk and has eaten. And Lot actually gets drunk. And, and he lies down. And then one goes in and sleeps with him. And comes out pregnant. The next night, they do the same thing. Is that not a very similar story? You have two women plotting, like in Genesis 19, uh, plotting to wait till the man has eaten and drank, and then go. Now, so automatically, their mind goes to where Moab started, and the baby born from one of Allah's children was named Moab. So all of a sudden, that's where their minds go. This is not good. Why would Naomi tell her to do such a thing? Why wait a minute? So automatically, this is a lot of overtones here. Very. And so uh, that's where that goes. But look what happens. Look in verse 5, though. I want you to see the character of Ruth. And she said to her, all that you say to me, I will do. I will obey you, Naomi. I'm committed to you. And verse 6, and she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. Not only did she say she was going to do it, she carried it out. Let's see how in verse 7. Now, the way this unfolds is very important, okay? There's some nuances that are very important that I want us to see. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. So I'm, I'll just imagine that scene for just a moment. They're all having a good time. They're eating. They're, they're drinking. And, and, and she's there. All dressed up and all good, but she makes herself not known. <laughs> this, uh, as my son, a couple nights ago, uh, y'all, y'all have babies. You know, like when you put them down to go to sleep, and you try to walk out, them see if he didn't notice you. And you're like, oh God! Okay, let's rock another twenty minutes at three o'clock in the morning. Oh gosh, again, you know. So and then you get to do that all over again. Uh, so she's just looking to make sure. He doesn't see her. You know, she's hiding out, but she's there. And the moment's right. It's, we're going to see it's midnight, and there he is asleep, you know. And she goes, and she uncovers his feet, and she lies down. And now Naomi said to do that and wait for the man to tell you what to do. But look what happens. Um, in verse 8, now it happened at midnight that the man was startled. What would you be? <laughs> Startled and turned himself, and there a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? So she answered, Oh, I am Ruth. That would have been enough. She is supposed to wait. She's supposed to wait for the man to tell her what to do. But look what she does. She goes on, Your maidservant, take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. She, goes, she doesn't wait for him to tell him what to do. She goes ahead and proposes. And she says, uh, take him under your wing. Pull your cover over your maidservant. And in, in the language here, it's the same word in chapter 2 where Boaz says, you have come under the wing of God. May God bless you. And now Ruth is saying, that prayer that you prayed, Boaz, about God blessing me be under his wing, you answer that prayer. You put me under your wing. You be the answer to that prayer. Let me be your maidservant. And the word maidservant there, remember in chapter 2, it was the lowest of low. It's a different word here. It is, it is, it is closer to a friend. It is closer to a spouse. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Verse 10, then he said, Blessed are you, are the Lord my daughter, for you have shown me kindness, hesedness. At the end, more than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. See, that's one of the reasons I, I don't know for sure that marriage was, was thinking in chapter 2. Surely it was working and it's coming. But uh, she says, you, I think he's shocked. 
You could have chosen all the better looking men, all the younger men, but you've showed more kindness now to me. You've asked me. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request. For all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now, how is this not scandalous? How is this not the same thing in Genesis 19 with Lot? How is this different? Well, uh, the, the reader would have went there and they saw the similarities. But what would have been a glaring to them was the differences. The differences. So you had two women plotting to go be with this man and, and, and to leave. And so here you see, you see the similarities there. But you also see the glaring differences. And here's the difference. One, Boaz isn't drunk. There's no indication of that. Uh, number two, r- nothing happens sexually here. Ruth, she goes out of his way to put verse 11 there. She is a virtuous woman. She comes obeying her mother-in-law, being faithful and loyal to her, and she's loyal to God, and she is pure, and she is virtuous. How interesting that many scholars believe that the original Old Testament canon, we understand why the book of Ruth is here, don't we? Because you have it, it's right after the judges, in between Samuel, when the kings, it's right there, and it makes so much sense why it should be there. But originally, many scholars say that's not where it was put. It was placed at the end of the Old Testament, right after the book of Proverbs. What's the last chapter in Proverbs 31? About a virtuous woman. And here we have, what in verse 11? For you are a virtuous woman. Uh, And what happened, in Proverbs 31 says, the virtuous woman shall be praised at the gate. What is about to happen at the city gate? She's about to be praised, isn't she? Seems to make a lot of sense. Here we have a virtuous, pure woman who is faithful to the vow she kept. Here's what I want you to see about loyalty in the character of Ruth. She is willing to do something that seemingly is is crazy, but she is committed to her mother-in-law. I hate to do this, but we have to go back to chapter 1. Go back with me to Ruth chapter 1, verse 15. You remember when Ruth... Uh, told her mother-in-law, I will not leave you nor forsake you. Don't ask me to do that again. Orpha has gone, but I will stay. And look at the vow she made. But Ruth said, do not treat me to leave you. In verse 16, nor turn back from following after me. Where you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. Whether you die, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts from you and me. She made a public vow to be devoted, and in verse 18 says she was determined to go with her. She was determined to follow Naomi and take care of Naomi. It was a public vow. She was committed. She was loyal. Can I tell you what I believe we need in our day is a bunch of Ruth's the quality of Ruth inside of us, of being truly committed, of being truly surrendered and determined to follow up on the vows that we make. Uh, today it's so hard to nail things down, isn't it? But we're so uh, last minute about everything. We're so last minute about committing to anything because why? Something better may come up between now and then. And we don't want to commit to anything. And that has rolled over to almost every relationship in our culture. Uh, just not being committed. And one of the reasons we're not, not committed because we think that hinder us. We think not being committed to something, not being loyal to something, it somehow, or being loyal, somehow chains us up. It binds us to that. But when in actuality, it does the very opposite. It brings life. You see, uh, living the other way without commitments, without vows, without being loyal to anything, uh, that's very animalistic. Uh, That's very living on instincts, living by the moment, living by our passions, living by the flesh. And Paul over and over says, that brings nothing but death. What I believe the church needs, what I believe I need, and what every one of us need is to be like Ruth and to be loyal, to have the hessedness of God in our relationships. You know, this is used so many times in wedding we talked about last week. That's a public vow. Do you know what a public vow is? Making a public vow 
is, is making a promise to yourself and an appointment in the future. Saying, in the future, here's where I'm going to be. And we, we even take that vow so lightly and all the other vows so lightly. Think about it. Um, here in a couple of weeks, we're going to make all kinds of vows, aren't we? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. We, me and my wife, we had a great time the other night talking about our goals and celebrating this year and talking about we made it through one year of having a baby. We're alive. He's alive. Woo, we did it, you know. <laughs> and, um, and, and talking about goals for next year. But we say, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. It just kills me to see all the commercials of all the exercise and diet stuff about to start coming on, don't it? They know. They're about to make a killing on all of us because three months from now, we're going to do it all over again. In three months, we're going to redo and do it all over again because our vows mean nothing. We don't stick to them. And it brings nothing but over and over disappointment and death. What we truly need is loyalty. What we truly need is commitment. Com uh, what we need is Ruth. See, she, this commitment said, you know what, Naomi? When you get older and more stubborn and I get tired of you, hey, I'm committed to you. I love you. Your God will be my God. Your people, my people. And by the way, I'm going to die wherever you die. I'm committed to death. That's what we need in our life. That's what we need to live out. <laughs> Did you see that? There where she is, Boaz at the threshing floor. She's supposed to stop and wait for him, but she says, I'm so committed to taking care of my mother-in-law. I'm going to make sure. I'm going to propose to this guy just in case he don't get it out. I'm that committed to her. That's what we need. That love, it, that, that hessedness. But you see, there's only one really truly. But if you and I say, you know what? That's what I'm going to do. I'm resolving to do that. I'm resolving to be Ruth. I'm, I'm going to resolve to be more resourceful. <laughs> I'm going to be more loyal. I'm going to do that. You will fail, my friend. Because you cannot do that except with God. You cannot do that unless you understand the gospel. You can't do that unless you're living out gospel relationships. Because it's God who is loyal to us. I think about God. And I think about how he loves a bride, his church. Who does nothing but what? Turn his back on him. That's all we seem to do day after day and let God down. There was, I was reading an article about a pastor that was large and, and, and his failures that he has. Reading this article last night, I wondered what had happened to him and, and the failures he'd went by. And, and this other pastor, his response to all that. Here's what that pastor said. He said, this should not be surprising. God's people let him down every day. He said, but what is surprising is the patience and the loving kindness and the grace of God that is new every single day. And only when you're in a living relationship like that, receiving the grace and the mercy, fresh and new every day, can you turn around and give it to others. That is what we need. That's how, that's how we need our church relations to be. Committed, loyal. Receiving from God and able to give to others. That's what we need our marriages to look like. Friend, we have so many thoughts of what marriage is. And I want my college guys and ladies, and I want every marriage to realize what we need is commitment like Ruth. And you cannot bring, you cannot fulfill your marriage unless you have a healthy relationship with God the Father and our Savior Jesus Christ. You can't have healthy friend relationships without that. There's no uh, level of relationship in the church publicly or private relationships that you can keep without being in a healthy relationship with God and receiving His mercy and His grace on a daily basis. But Ruth had come under the wings of God. I want to make a couple um, just a couple thoughts here as we end this morning of similarities between both Boaz and Ruth, if I could. Just a couple similarities in these two scenes. Um, number one, they, this was selfless sacrifice. Self, a selfless sacrifice. Um, I, I, what, was, what was Ruth going to get out of taking care of Naomi? Nothing. What did Naomi have to offer Ruth? She said, Ruth, don't follow me. I don't have a, a husband to take care of you. I don't have a son you can marry. I don't have food I can give you. I don't, I don't have nothing for you. Please go be taken care of. I cannot help you. She said, no. I will take care of you. She got nothing out of it. Selfless. Uh, what did Boaz, what did he get after, what was he going to get out of taking care of a Moabite foreign enemy? who was homeless and needed food, he was going to get nothing out of it. But he did it anyways. He, see, he, they both entered into relationships where they wasn't expecting to get something in return. 
You see, we enter so many relationships today wondering what we're going to get out of it. You know, we say, well, you know what? I may tell that person about Jesus because I bet they'll accept him. I bet, I bet they'll praise me if I do that. I bet I can, I'll do this for God because I'll get this in return. I'll have a friendship with this person because they can introduce me to this person. And I'll be somebody if I know this person. If I hang out with this person, I, I'll, I'll get to take a really cool Facebook selfie or Instagram, and, and they'll know who I was with if I'm with that person. It's not the relationships we see here. We see these people, these faithful people full of the hessedness of God enter into relationships where they are promised nothing in return and see very little return at all. But don't we enter into relationships with a cost-benefit deal? What, what's it going to cost me and what am I going to benefit? It's not what we see here. And, and the last thing I want to point out here is these were everyday people. Uh, we have talked, haven't we, Pastor David? We have talked, and this has been so much fun, and uh, sit around and, and just ask ourselves, well, what's the whole theme of this thing? What's the whole point of this book? Well, here you have God doing this great thing. You have God bringing about a king, David, and more than that, you have him coming about a Messiah, and, and you have this time of judges and all this, but then you have this short story, which in my Bible is just one little page, one little page. And what's it all about? It's about these normal, everyday people. Ruth is an everyday person. She's a bold person. She's a seemingly, uh, you know, she's loyal. She's just an everyday person. Who's Boaz? Boaz is the businessman who's a person of integrity that just gets it right, just tries to do the right thing. And they're just, here's Naomi. She's a person who's just went through great tragedy. These are everyday people. And you and I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I think, well, this day after day, getting up, going to the same job, doing the same work, drawing the same paycheck, going home to the same family over and over and over. What's the point of all this? The monotony of all this? I mean, is, is, there, man, is there greater anything to this? And God's pointing out that the decisions that these everyday people make, that he is interweaving that into the greatest story the world has ever heard, the Christmas story, the gospel story. And that applies to me and you today because the decisions you and I make in our everyday lives, the relationships we enter into, the way we treat people, and on and on, every little decision, everyone, God is weaving together in his story. And friend, decisions are so important. I was thinking uh, yesterday, uh, we were at a graduation party at Pine Grove. I grew up at uh, Pine Grove, by around middle school. My family started going to church and um, never really been in church too much before that. And uh, we went there and I got saved there. Um, I, I, we got married there, um, started ministry there in the youth ministry. And uh, we were there yesterday for the first time with Watson. And um, as we were there, we kind of went on the front steps and took a picture. thought, wow, look, how cool is this? And as I was thinking about this morning and the decisions in my life and thinking, it, it, in a way, it's culminated all these decisions and to, to, to be here. And I, I remembered I couldn't help but go back. I, I was in, uh, man, God had been dealing in my heart. I had heard the gospel. This is bad. I, I, I was so just resistant to, to God and the gospel that I can remember the pastor's wife sitting me down in middle school. It's, she'd asked to talk to me. We're sitting in the back row of the church, and she just starts uh, sharing the gospel with me. Would I accept it? I looked straight down, and I would not say anything to her. I didn't, I, I didn't want to accept God. I just didn't want anything to do with it. And I just, I just no. Uh, but I, I can remember. God had just been dealing so hard with me, and every day softened my heart, and day after day, and I'd got to the point, and I was like, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm ready. I'm tired. I just keep messing everything up. I, I really don't have any hope. I've been the, I got to the place where I really figured out that my biggest problem was me, that I had been the God of my life. And really, is that not the greatest sin? So I know I got the devil kicked out of heaven. Is that not what he tempted Adam and Eve to do? When they sin, you can be your own God. You can know what's right and wrong. And so I'd figure out that was me. And because of that, I deserve God's wrath. And I'd played baseball. We played in a baseball game that day. And I'd come in in my uniform, and I can remember uh, sitting there. It was a revival night. They had a painter-singer guy for revival. I don't know. It was crazy. Um, but I, I had determined I was going to go accept Christ that night. I, I, I was tired of running from God. And I remember, and I was always scared of what everybody would think, you know. Like, I was like, man, what are they going to think of me? They know me. You know, and they know I don't know Jesus. Like that's that was what was even worse. And it's going to be so embarrassing when I come up from except Jesus. It's going to be terrible. I was just frightened, and I, I never forget. I got out that night, and I, and I come down the aisle. I said, "I've accepted Christ, my Savior," and oh man, the weight lifted off. 
I'll never forget that. Oh, man, that it, when, when I publicly announced that Jesus was my Savior and I followed that up with a public profession of faith and believer's baptism, wow. I, can, I cannot just explain to you that decision. And that decision has led to where I am today. Nowhere of importance or nowhere of greatness. But, but this, that decision, that day after playing a baseball game, that decision has altered not only my life but my eternity. The decision Ruth made when she made that public vow right there, it not only altered her life, it altered her eternity. Decisions we make every day make a huge difference. My friend, I want to ask you, it, it, could it be that you just have not made that decision? It's the biggest decision you will ever make. And let me encourage you, you have to be saved the same way Ruth was and the same way I was. You have to make a decision. God won't do it for you. You have to make it for yourself to repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus. If you've never done that, I want to invite you to do that today. As I did years ago in middle school, accepted Christ. I want to tell you, when I did that, everybody was so excited. And a lady came up to me and said, I couldn't go to the service today because I'd been praying for you. I couldn't walk in there because God had so burdened my heart for you. I promise you, people have been praying for you. I promise you, you've been on other people's hearts as they've been praying that you would make a decision that would impact your eternity so you wouldn't have to endure God's wrath, but that you would enjoy His joy and His presence and His heaven. You can do that today. Hey, listen, Christian, how's your hessiness? How's your grace? How's your loyalty? The only way you can do it is have a, a true day-by-day -day relationship with Jesus. Let us pray together. I want to ask that nobody would leave at this time or nobody would interrupt, but that music would come. And as we pray, I want, to, I want to ask you, dear friend, is that you? Is that you that would say, God's been dealing with me, but I've just been putting it off, and I, you know, this really is a huge decision, and I've been thinking about it, I've been contemplating it, God's been burning in my heart, and this morning, uh, I'm tired of running. Can I tell you, it's the best decision I've ever made in my life. And it has formed a relationship since then, and it's been nothing but the best thing. Maybe this morning you're at that point ready to make that decision. I want to lead you in a prayer. Uh, certain words won't save you, but putting your faith in Jesus will save you. Do you say something like this to God? God, I'm ready to surrender to you. I'm ready to follow you and not me. I repent of my sins. I place my faith in Jesus Christ.